Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 4 to 16. And I've titled this Man Pleaser or God Pleaser? And I've been looking forward to teaching on this for a while. It's quite challenging. So we'll pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us the opportunity to come together and fellowship and encourage and exhort and, Lord, that we can build each other up and encourage each other to draw near to you. Lord, that we would put aside all the worldly things and, Lord, be accountable to each other. Lord, we would be wanting to be pure and holy before you so we could be in a close relationship with you. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do the memory verse together. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So the introduction's the same. Uh, it's been the same for the last few weeks. Remember, this is one big, long prophecy, chapters 40 through 48. I think it's probably the largest single prophecy in the Bible. So basically, the setting of this prophecy is in the millennial reign of Christ on earth. So we're now in the church age. What will happen next is the rapture, and then shortly after that, the tribulation will start, the seven-year tribulation. That will terminate or finish when Jesus comes back at his second coming. Of course, we come back with him. And then he sets up on earth his thousand-year millennial reign where he rules from his temple in Jerusalem. Jesus called it his throne. And then I've got the outline of the nine chapters there. So, so far we have seen in Ezekiel, we've covered chapters 40 through 43 and a bit more, the angel gave the measurements and pattern for the millennial temple to Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 42. Then the glory of the Lord Jesus came into his temple, and Jesus declared that the temple would be his throne from where he would rule the earth, and he would never leave. His glory and presence would never leave that temple. That's 43 verses 1 through 12. And then we read about the altar for burnt offerings and the instructions for its consecration, including animal sacrifices. In 43 verses 13 through 27. And in 43 verses 1 through 12, Jesus comes and takes his rightful place on the throne, which is inside the temple. And in 44 verses 1 through 3, the eastern gate and the prince, the outer eastern gate is shut forever because Jesus went in there and he's never going to leave. And that's a picture of our eternal assurance the assurance of our eternal salvation. So, this week, we have a powerful lesson on the long-term consequences of our faithfulness or lack of it, and also how the holiness of God should affect our worship. So I'm going to, before we jump into Ezekiel, just set ourselves up, set our hearts right, and go into Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. It says this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, 
who seek your face. Remember last week we read Psalm 27 verses 7 through 11 and a part of that said, Hear me as I pray, O Lord, be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, Come and talk with me, seek my face. And my heart responds, I am coming, Lord, I am coming. So this week we're adding to that. We're adding, okay, well, how do we come? We must remember that God is a holy God. And if we are not holy in our conduct and lifestyle, then we can't draw near to God because God won't accept us. And that's what we're going to cover today. And it's written for the priests, but we apply it personally to ourselves. So two main sections today. Who may enter and serve in the sanctuary, in the temple? in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 44, and then the laws governing the priests, the ones who are faithful versus the ones who are unfaithful, verses 10 through 16. So let's jump in and read Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 4 through 9. And again, this is all written concerning the priests, but we can get direct application for us as well. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. See with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house, that is the temple, and all who go out from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us, remember that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have no more of your abominations. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. And this is against the Levites, here, the priests. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So, before we get into it, what does it mean to be uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh. Well, flesh circumcision is pretty obvious. The Jews have this ritual where the males are circumcised. And if you become a Jew, you must become circumcised if you're a male. Now, what about the uncircumcised in heart? Well, it all goes back to the meaning of circumcision, the biblical meaning of circumcision. So, basically, it means that you're cutting off the old nature. And so you're cutting off the old part of you. And so if you're uncircumcised in heart, it means you haven't cut it off the old part of you. You are not a new person. You are not repentant. So, verses 4 and 5. Mark well who may enter the house or the temple. Also he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, Mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinance of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. So he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. Looking at the diagram on the front there, he's standing 
at the outer eastern gate. That's where we left off last week. Why couldn't he go through that gate? Because it shut for how long? Forever. Yes, because the Lord went through that outer eastern gate and he'll never leave and therefore it never needs to be opened again. And that's a picture of our eternal security and we went through that last week. And therefore, he went around to the right and went through the northern gate to get into the temple complex again. In verse 4, Behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Now, you read in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple, and in the tabernacle, the glory came, and then the glory went, if you know what I mean. like He appeared, and yes, the glory of the Lord was still in the Holy of Holies above the cherubim, but the people couldn't see it. But it appears that the glory, the Shekinah glory of God now, will be always visible, always not just present, but always visible. And so the field is in the, what we call the perfect tense, meaning it's something that happened in the past, but still continues or has effect in the present. And so back in Ezekiel 43, we saw the glory of God enter the temple. And in Ezekiel 43 verse 7, God promised that he would remain there forever, like his glory would, his presence. And as promised, as Ezekiel goes back in a bit later on, the Shekinah glory of God is still present and still visible in the temple. And what does Ezekiel do when he sees the glory of God? Falls on his face. He's aware of the holiness of God and he falls on his face. So I think this is going to be the response of all who visit the temple during the millennium. When we see the Shekinah glory of God, we will fall on our face in reverence to God. And we're going to come back to this proper attitude of worship at the end. So verse 5 sets us up. It says, Mark well who may enter the house of the temple and all who go out from the sanctuary. So this is the point of the next 10 verses or 11 verses. Verses 6 through 16. Which priests will be able to enter the sanctuary? So verses 6 through 9, I've titled, There's no foreigners allowed in the sanctuary, only the Levites. And so let's read this bit. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. Again, I just want to point out the us there is plural for the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see that in Genesis as well and other parts of the Bible. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So in verse 6, it starts off by saying, Now to the rebellious, to the house of Israel. He's talking to the people in Ezekiel's day. They were rebellious. They were disobedient. So much so that God had to kick them out of their land. Yeah, Remember the context of the book of Ezekiel? They were so rebellious, they wouldn't listen. So God sent the Babylonians three times, and they wouldn't listen. The third time, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and they got completely taken out of their land. 
And verse 6, let us have no more of your abominations. When Jesus returns to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom, the people will have to repent of their sins and forsake their idolatry. Those who don't will no longer have access to the temple. Because back in Ezekiel's day, we had all these wicked people going to the temple, and God was bearing with that. But no more in the millennium. Verse 7, When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Wow. Can you imagine the priests not wanting to fulfill their priestly duties and getting other people who weren't priests to be actually in the temple of God doing the work of a priest? Well, that's what they did. It's neglect of our God-given duties. What's the application for us? God gives us a role. Are we going to fulfill it? You know, raising our kids. Whose job is that? It's the parents, yeah? <laughs> what a lot of parents do today. Well, I let someone else raise my kids. We have to be careful to do the things that God has called us to do and not neglect them, yeah? So, God will not allow this to happen in the millennial temple. Only the priests who are descended from the correct families will be allowed to serve in the temple. We'll get into that more. And a quote from Alexander, The religions of the ancient Near East frequently use foreign captives as temple servants to aid the priests. The Lord's rebuke of Israel in these verses reflected ancient Israel's adoption of this practice. So, again, becoming like the world. It's doing things the world's way. That's what the church is like today, isn't it? Just doing things the world's way. More and more. Becoming more and more like the world. Now, we can move on to verses 10 through 16. Laws governing priests. Faithful versus unfaithful. So let's read verses 10 through 14. And this covers the priests who were unfaithful towards God. And later, we'll read verses 15 to 16, which covers the priests which were faithful towards God. So, firstly, verse 10 to 14. And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers or servants of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people and they shall stand before them, that is, the people, to minister to them, the people. Because they ministered to them, the people, before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity, or the consequences for their sin, yeah? And they shall not come near me. This is where it gets really serious. And they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. So, who are the Levites? In verse 10 there. Well, they're one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now God chose them out of all the tribes of Israel to be responsible for the spiritual duties of the nation. And within the tribe of Levi, there were different family groups. And like, for example, Aaron's family was a family that would be where the high priest would descend from. 
this high priest had to come from the family of Aaron. And other families within the tribe of Levi had different responsibilities, like you know, carrying the ark or carrying the tabernacle or doing different things. So that's the Levites. God chose them to do various things in and around the temple. And in verse 10 it says, The Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols. So when the nation strayed away from God and worshipped idols, then so did most of the Levites. And if you look in the history, basically the nation kind of abandoned the Levites in the temple worship and didn't contribute to it, and they had to go and work. And so they all had to kind of make their own living. They didn't get the tithe from the people. and So it wasn't easy for them to remain faithful to God. And so a lot of them just did what they could. They did what they knew, I'm imagining. They knew how to be a priest. And so the people worship idols, and they helped the people worship idols. In verse 12, because they ministered to them, they served the people before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. So here we see what happens when the spiritual leaders neglect their duties. They cause the people they are serving to fall into iniquity or sin. And this is what happened in Ezekiel's day. Most of the priests were corrupt and were now in exile. In verses 10 through 12, They shall bear their iniquity, they shall not come near to me to minister to me as priests. Yet they shall be ministers, servants in my sanctuary. So in these verses we see both God's grace and forgiveness and also his discipline. So firstly, grace. Where do we see grace? Well, despite their disobedience, God promises that he will restore them to temple service, albeit in a minor and more insignificant way. So God could have kicked them out completely. You were unfaithful. You were sacrificing animals to idols for the people instead of to me. No, no more. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to let you save my temple, but... I'm going to take away some of the privileges, some of the roles and responsibilities that you would have had where you would have been in my presence. You can do all the things that were in the presence of the people, but the things in my presence you will miss out on. And we'll come back to that, that reduced ability to enjoy the presence of God. And that's going to be the case. They're going to have lost these sacred roles that they once held for the entire thousand years of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And in the next few verses, we'll see that the family of Zadok have been given these privileges because they were faithful. Verse 13, And they shall not come near me to minister to me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things, nor come into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. And as I was saying before, this is the most important consequence of habitual sin. We're all going to sin. 1 John 1, nine and on through chapter 2, verse 2, talks about our ability to go to God and receive forgiveness. But habitual sin, where we continue in this sin, it causes limited relationship and fellowship with God and disqualification from aspects of service to God. And there's a whole section in Corinthians about being disqualified. Not disqualified from salvation, but disqualified from the ministry that God had for us. So, we need to remember that sin damages our relationship with God. 
Now, sin affects us in other practical, emotional, financial, and physical ways. But the spiritual consequences, that is being out of fellowship with God and resulting disqualification from the more privileged or responsible forms of service for God, are by far, I believe, the most important. And as an observation, I think it's really sad that many believers don't have the spiritual eyes or discernment to understand what they are missing out on as they are being held captive by Satan to do whatever he wants. 2 Timothy 2.26 And what do you think the worst habitual sin is? <laughs> it's pride. Yeah. Pride is the root of all sin, yeah? And so you may not be doing anything outwardly, but if you've got a prideful attitude and you're willing to repent of that prideful attitude, that is habitual sin. So whatever the habitual sin is, one day those who continue in their habitual sin will be like these unfaithful priests and they will understand what their sin really cost them and they will bear their shame. And you can see 2 Timothy 2, 20 verse 26 and it talks about you know articles in the house. You know, some are used for noble purposes and some for ignoble or dishonorable purposes and we want to be cleansed of our sinfulness we want to be cleansed of our habitual sin so we can be used as a vessel of honor in the house of god in the church as an application so let us pray that and this is a quote from 2 timothy 2 25 and 26 let us pray that perhaps god will change those people's hearts and that they will learn the truth then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. So remember, this is talking about Christians here, yeah? They're all in the house, but they're not all used for honorable purposes. And that scripture in Second Timothy there is really good to describe the fate of these unfaithful priests. Yes, they're still in the house, still being used, but not to their full potential. Ezekiel 44, verses 15 and 16, this covers the priests who were faithful to God. This is the sons of Zadok. Verse 15, But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and there they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. What's this all about? Who is this all about? It's all about God, isn't it? How many times does God say, my or me in here? So verse 15, But the priests, the Levites, are sons of Zadok. And so the right says, The new priesthood is confined to the line of Zadok, who was a descendant of Eleazar, the third son of Aaron. Representatives of this line had evidently stood firm, meaning they hadn't gone after the idols with the rest of the nation. Another quote from Feinberg, who gives us a bit more background. Zadok was the son of Ahitab of the line of Eleazar. Then references are in your notes. He was faithful to David during the insurrection of Absalom. 
and anointed Solomon as king after the abortive attempt of Adonijah to seize the throne. Remember that um, civil unrest there. So this family of priests, they stayed faithful to what God wanted and didn't follow the crowd. And as an application for families, the obedience of the father or the parents has long-term benefits for their children. We want to leave a godly example and a godly heritage for our children that will make it easier for them to follow the Lord. What we do doesn't change whether or not they're going to be saved. We can make their life easier. Verse 15 and 16. They shall come near me to minister to me. And a quote from David Guzik here. With great emphasis, God declared that the ministry of the priests was fundamentally to who? God himself. So the primary ministry of the priest was fundamentally to God himself. This is noted in the phrases, near me, to minister to me, before me, to offer to me, to minister to me. And David Guzik continues, Seen in the light of the new covenant, there is a spiritual application of this. Every believer is a priest unto God. 1 Peter 2.5 and 2.9, Revelation 1.6 and 5.10. This charge to the sons of Zadok emphasizes the principle that believers in general, and God's servants in particular, have their first service unto God himself. We do serve one another and a needy world for the glory of Jesus, but God first says unto us, they shall come near to me to minister to me. So, as a believer, you are a priest. Okay, We are kings and priests in God's kingdom. What's our first priority? To minister to people, to others, or to minister to the Lord? To the Lord. We serve him first, yeah? How do we do that? We spend time with him. Personal obedience, yeah? Setting our heart to seek the Lord, making that our goal, purposefully saying, this is my desire. I want to have a deeper relationship with God. I am going to prioritize God in my life so I can be closer to him. That's ministering unto the Lord. It's all about this personal relationship with God. So we can get really caught up in doing things you know, serving different ministries, you know, teaching even, all that kind of stuff, witnessing. But that's unto men. God says, serve me first, you know, draw near to me. And all the other stuff will just follow. But we need to come to God first. And as a practical note, if we don't spend much time with God, then we have little to offer to others. We'll be empty. Now, we come to an application. Man-pleaser or God-pleaser? And then in verse 15 and 16 it says, They shall come near me to minister to me. So verses 10 through 14 describe the unfaithful Levites as doing what the people wanted them to do. They ministered to them before their idols. They served the people before their idols. Now you think about this. Put yourself in their shoes, right? They were popular with the people. The people think these priests are awesome. But they were not popular with God. 
In contrast, Zadok and his family remained faithful to God. And no doubt, it must have been difficult for them to be faithful to God and go against the flow of the whole nation that was in deep rebellion against God. So, for them, the sons of Zadok and his family, or Zadok and his family, they were popular with God, but not popular with the people. So, there's some verses in the New Testament which really emphasize this decision that we all need to make. Am I going to be a man pleaser or a God pleaser? So, Galatians 1 verse 10 from the NLT. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So, whose approval am I trying to win? If I'm trying to please people, I'm not Christ's servant. The Amplified says it a little bit differently. Now, am I trying to win the favor of men or God? So that's a question we can ask ourselves, isn't it? That's a very deep question. And it actually is a difficult question to answer. Do I seek to please men if I were still seeking popularity with men? Notice that word popularity, yeah? I should not be a bondservant of Christ, the Messiah. So basically, if I'm seeking popularity with men, I cannot be a bondservant of Christ, the Messiah. Another passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4-6. to Again, this is Paul. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. What a powerful testimony, hey? This is from Paul and his friends. God is our witness, yeah? We were not pretending. This is not just Paul, but the people who are working with him, yeah? As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. So how can we summarize what we just read? Well, those who are seeking man's praise are man-pleasers, servants of man. Listen to that, servants of man. While those who seek praise and approval from God are God-pleasers, they are servants of God. And we'll go into man-pleasing, God-pleasing war in a second. Now, how do we know where we're at? How do we know our true motives? Well, as individuals, we can know our true motive by what happens when we aren't praised or are criticized by other people, especially those who are important people in our life. It could be our employer, a family member, or anyone like that. If they say something badly toward us, or if they don't give us the praise that we think we deserve, and then my response is, that I get all down and depressed and I sulk. Then it shows that I am craving the praises, approval and affirmation of men, of people. However, if the lack of attention and our criticism, especially, again, from those who are close to us, people who are important to us, has little effect on me, then I know that my true motive is to please Christ. Now, what's the danger of being a man-pleaser? Well, we read it already this morning, just by... God incidents, 
Proverbs 29:25 Fearing people is a dangerous trap but trusting the Lord means safety and from the amplified it says the fear of man brings a snare but whoever leans on trusts in and puts his confidence in the Lord is safe and set on high why is it a snare well if I'm fearing or seeking to please people then we are not fearing or seeking to please God. And the fear of man will lead me into all kinds of sin and problems as I find myself unable to say no to people because I'm fearful of losing their approval. Now, it makes a really dark and insecure life. And what happens? Well, someone over here wants me to act like this and someone over here wants me to act like that. And so I become like a chameleon. How I act depends on whom I'm around. Will the real me please stand up, you know? That's a man-pleaser. Fearing man. It's a snare. You are never, ever going to be happy living that kind of life. However, if I'm ultimately concerned about what God thinks of me and looking forward to hearing God say to me at the beam of judgment, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord then I won't be afraid of what others will think of me as I live for Christ. Now, we can apply this to leaders in the church today. So, it's a bit personal here. What makes the difference between a pastor who is serving the Lord and a pastor who is serving the people? Well, the pastor, like the the priest, the unfaithful priest in Ezekiel's day, the pastor who is serving the people, seeking the approval of the people, will say what the people want him to say, just like the unfaithful priests did. And just like the unfaithful priests, they will lead their people astray, telling them what they want to hear, tickling their itching ears, yeah? That's what false teachers do. In contrast, the pastor who is serving God will only say what God wants him to say, which is the whole truth of the gospel, the whole counsel of God. And he will not be worried about what others think of him as he faithfully and accurately teaches the whole counsel or word of God. So Paul is a good example to follow. Let's read a few verses from Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21 and 26 through 29. It says, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. So either in his teaching or in his counseling, you could say, I have had One message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And skipping down to verse 26, I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Then I'll just pause here. In the movie, there's light left behind, but it's the 70s one. In there, there's two pastors, and one of the pastors was, you know, being a man pleaser and just telling his people what they wanted to hear. Oh, you're a nice person. You don't need to repent. You can just do what you want, etc., etc. And the other person was saying, you need to repent. God's coming back. You need to get things right with God. Well, the pastor who was left behind, he wasn't even saved. 
he got saved after he got left behind. He realized he was wrong. And the worst thing for him was he couldn't say this. He had people in the movie coming back into his church, because remember this is picturing the tribulation, saying, why didn't you tell me the truth? You know? And so he's going, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you the truth. It was my responsibility. I failed you. And now you're still here with me. So I'll continue. I'll start from verse 26. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink back from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church. Purchase with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from among your own group, that is the group of elders from the church in Ephesus that were there with Paul on the beach, even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. You see this? False teaching, they're there to draw a following after themselves. Now, I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 26 and 27 from the New King James. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So now, I want to finish with another application today. This is adoring worship. How do we come before God? Well, I've chosen the word adore because adore or adoration means to have deep love and deep respect. And we need both if we're going to come to God and be accepted by Him. So, worship. Because in this passage we're talking about today, God is saying, Who's going to come? You know, who's going to come into the temple? And it's all about, you know, who's going to enjoy a relationship with me? So, what is worship? Well, is worship just what we do on Sunday mornings when we sing songs? Or is worship my entire life? Does God want my entire life to be one continuous act of worship? So, we read Romans 12.1 from the Amplified in the New Living. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent, logical service and spiritual worship. So this is your worship, is giving all of your lives, all of your time, all of your mind, everything to God. That is worship. We'll come back to divine worship in a minute. From the New Living. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So, true worship is laying what we want down so we can do what God wants and doing it willingly. So, to summarize what God is asking of us, if I, out of love, based on an appreciation for what God has already done for me, choose to sacrifice or give up what I want 
and instead live in obedience to what God wants, which is purity and holiness, then I am worshipping God. And so literally, simply, to worship God means to choose to love God more than all the earthly desires and appetites that compete for my affections. My actions will tell me who or what I love the most. Words and emotions don't mean anything when I'm not obeying or submitted to God. We can say what we want, but what we do is the proof in the pudding, yeah? 1 John 2.15 states the obvious. We can't love God and the world at the same time. And we come back to the thing of habitual sin. Habitual sin, wrong attitudes and motivations, and a false teaching must be dealt with before we can truly worship God, meaning to submit ourselves to God and enjoy that relationship. So, this next part applies to both our personal worship, giving ourselves to God, and also our corporate worship when we worship together as a church. So, our worship is not accepted by God when the focus is too much on God's love at the expense of God's holiness, and so it becomes flippant, disrespectful to God, focused on having an emotional experience, and is man-centered, like it's all about me. Or, the focus is too much on God's holiness at the expense of God's love, and so it becomes forced and legalistic, mechanical, our emotions suppressed. Or, and this is mainly for the unbeliever, the focus is solely on the worshipper and what he can get out of the experience, like the false convert type person. And this is pure selfishness. It's like going to a concert or football game and seeking to be entertained. Yeah. So, what kind of worship is accepted? Well, the worshipper comes with a deep reverence or fear of God, recognizing God's holiness, his perfection, and their own sinfulness and wretchedness. And the worshipper has great appreciation and love for God based on all that he has done for them. And the worshipper therefore willingly submits their will to God's. And so we see that it's all based on coming, understanding who I am, who God is, understanding what he's done for me to bring him back into relationship with him, and then, out of appreciation, I love him and want to obey him. Now, why do you think God is being quite strict in warning the priests to remain holy? Because remember, this is written to the priests in Ezekiel's day, but it's written for the priests in the Millennial Kingdom, yeah? So, those priests who were not holy what would happen to them if they went into the direct presence of God, into the Shekinah glory of God? They'd die. Yeah. <laughs> and so God is giving a really strict warning here because he doesn't want to kill them. Yeah. And we'll see a couple of examples that actually happened. We must understand God's holiness, and we're going to focus on that for a bit now. Anyone who tries to enter God's presence in an unholy manner will be killed. Now, what did they used to do with the high priest? On the Day of Atonement, it was the only day of the year when the high priest, or anyone, could go into the Holy of Holies, where the ark was and the Shekinah glory of God was dwelling above the cherubim there, on the mercy seat, the lid on the top of the ark. They would put a rope round his leg and bells on his clothes. Why? Because if he wasn't accepted by God, he would die. And how are you going to get him out? So, if the bell stopped ringing, they could drag him out. And that's the story I've heard. So, it's probably true. 
God is warning us that we cannot approach him if we are not holy. What does the Bible say? Be holy for I am holy. Or you must be holy for I am holy. So I'm going to look at two examples of well-intentioned but false, man-centered and unholy corporate worship in the Old Testament. And now you can apply these examples to both corporate worship that is in the church as well as our lives being a continuous act of worship which is willing submission to God. So, King David. Got on him, eh? The man after God's own heart. And he's our first example. In his first attempt to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem, it ended in disaster. Yeah, he had good motives, right? He wanted people to experience a relation with God and to choir of God. He wanted to bring people back to God, yeah? But the way he went about it was to use human wisdom and worldly methods. And he didn't have concern for what God wanted. He sought the approval of men, but he didn't seek the approval of God, which could be found in the Word of God. So let's read that. It's in First Chronicles 13, 1-12. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. This is a big meeting. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If this seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. So you see his motivation there. It's good, right? Then all the assembly said that they would do so. Now, watch this next phrase. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So all the people thought this was a great idea. There's only one problem. God didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> so David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt as far as entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from kirith Jerem. And David and all Israel went up to Belah, to kirith Jerem, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, whose Shekinah glory dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Now this is the modern, trendy and worldly Philistine method. If you go back a few chapters, you know the Philistines had defeated Israel, they had captured the ark, and it was in Philistine territory. God cursed the Philistines, and they had all kinds of tumors and whatever, and they said, we've got to get rid of this ark. And they put it on a new cart, they didn't understand you know what the poles were for. So they put a new car and sent it back and the cows were lowing all the way, took all the right turns, took it straight back to the land of Israel and the Philistines understood, yep, that was God. God was judging us. So, what did the Israelites do? They copied the world's way, didn't they? Instead of doing it God's way, they did it the world's way. This is a much better idea. I mean, it's easier, right? Imagine carrying that big box with gold is heavy. Carrying your shoulders. No, just put in a cart, you know. So they carry the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Now their names mean friendly and strength. So, you know, good people to be at the front of the worship service there. Strong and friendly, 
Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might. They were in this with all their hearts here, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Tridon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Literally, outbreak against Uzzah, yeah? David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? So, just looking at verse 11 and 12 in that passage in First Chronicles. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day. David Guzik says, David's anger was based in confusion. He couldn't understand why his good intentions weren't good enough. God is concerned with both our intentions and our actions. Now, I think that's a very common mistake. We've got good intentions. God knows my heart. How come we can't do it? You know, if we mean well, what's wrong with that? No, because you're not doing it God's way. God is holy. You need to respect him. If you do things your way, not his way, it's just like disrespect. You know, you imagine your boss asking you to do something. And you say, yeah, I'll do what you say, but I'll do it my way. Your boss has asked you to do a certain thing a certain way, and you don't do it. That's disrespectful. Simple. So it's the old saying, the end doesn't justify the means. We must accomplish God's will, God's way. And this applies in all areas of our lives. That is also true concerning how we worship God corporately, that is, in church, Sundays and that. God requires that we worship him his way and not ours. Worship is for God's pleasure and benefit, not ours. Worship is a reflection of who God is and his attributes, not ours. And so that's why we have to do things God's way. So in David's example, God instructed that the ark be carried on the shoulders, Exodus 25, 12-15, of a certain family of priests, and Numbers 4.15 tells you who. When David tried again the second time to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he obeyed these commands and all went well. The singing and the dancing was all the same. They still danced with all their hearts and sung and everything. But this time, God was pleased because the people honored him by obeying him. So we can never say that we are honoring or worshiping God if we are not obeying him, if we are not fully submitted to him. We can say, oh, I've got good intentions. Intentions don't mean anything. Are you obeying him? Are you submitted to him? Now the second example is where Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire before the Lord and they were killed. This is in the wilderness just after Moses had finished building and consecrating the tabernacle after eight days of sacrifices and that was similar to what we read about in the Millennial Temple. So Leviticus 9.22-10-3 Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle meeting and came out and blessed the people. So they're okay. All right, they're doing things God's way. They're following God's commands. Then the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Imagine being there for that, right? Fire coming down and burning up the sacrifice. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. Remember, these were the priests. Okay, 
and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So the Old Testament law is very specific as to how a person or priest is to approach God under the Old Covenant. Nadab and Abihu approach God their own way, and that's why it's called profane fire. It says, they offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. They were not honoring God before the people. They were not regarding God as holy. And again, is this over the top that God would kill someone for not doing things his way? Not really. Again, look at the reason. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So, God must be regarded as holy by those who come near to him. Why? Well, true worship is all about willing submission and obedience. And only willing obedience to our king is honouring to him. Just like a loving and obedient child brings honour to their parents. And then the opposite is also true. When a child is disobedient, they bring much shame, grief and pain to their parents. So the parents expect the child to do things their way. Yeah, they're the parent. And the child responds in love and says, yeah, I'll do it your way. In Proverbs 19.26, children who mistreat their father or chase away their mother are an embarrassment and a public disgrace. That's what it's like for God when we don't recognize his holiness and, and just do things our way. Do things we want. Now, what's the best example of willing submission and obedience in the Bible? Well, for me, it's Genesis 22. Abraham is asked to give up his son Isaac, to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. Isaac is Abraham's first love. At this point, Sarah's died, I'm pretty sure. And Abraham has put everything, all his hopes are in Isaac. From Isaac will come the promised Messiah. And now God is asking him to give all this up, all his hopes, everything. And Abraham freely and fully surrendered to God. As an act of worship, he was willing to obey God and give up his only son that he loved, Isaac. Now, I'm not going to go into it too much, but there's a law of first mention in hermeneutics. It's how to interpret the Bible. And in this passage in Genesis 22, we have three words used the first time. Obey, love, and worship. And so, to cut this short, Abraham's act of worship can be defined as him choosing to love God more than his only son Isaac, which was demonstrated by his willing obedience to God's command to sacrifice Isaac. So worship, love, and obedience. Try and see that connection there. Abraham said, I don't have time to read the whole passage today, but if you read it for yourself later, Genesis 22, Abraham said, the young man, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship. And God said, I want you to sacrifice your only son Isaac, the son you 
love. And then later in the chapter, God says, because you have obeyed. Okay, So Abraham demonstrated his love for God by his obedience. And that was an act of worship. And that's how we worship in our daily life. We continually choose to love God more than anything else in our lives. And that is an act of worship. It's giving God the honor. He's saying, God, yes, you are worthy of being the most important part of my life. So, again, to summarize, if you want to get to the real essence of worship, it's simply putting God first by choosing to love him the most and demonstrating that love by willingly obeying exactly what God tells us to do. And this necessarily means cleansing ourselves from the filth of this world so we can be holy like God is holy. Again, 2 Timothy 2.21. This is how we honor and glorify God. Now, worship. The word actually comes from this picture of a dog putting his nose into the hand of the master or licking the hand of his master. Have you seen that before? You come home from work, have you had a dog? And the dog runs up to you and licks you, you know. What's the dog want? Well, it wants your approval. And he's waiting for you to tell him to do something. You know? Depending on what type of dog is, it might be go to the park or go round up those sheep. So, with a heart full of adoration, when we come back to this word adoration now, it means deep love and respect. I will naturally do only things that please God and not the things that please me. So if I adore God, if I both love him and respect him, then I will do the things that please him. And this brings glory to God as I honor his name. I've got a few verses to finish with, and then we'll take communion. Psalm 29 verse 2, Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God is worthy of our honor. Psalm 96 verse 9, before I read this, I'll just say it's for two reasons, not just for what he's done, but for who he is. Psalm 96 verse 9, I worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, tremble before and reverently fear him all the earth. Psalm 112 verse 1, praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. So here's a verse that talks about the motive for obeying joy and delight. Okay, We can't have that unless we first love him. Psalm 138 verse 1 and 2. I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises to you. So you've got all these other distractions, all these other affections, things in the world trying to attract us and steal our heart's affections away from God. And we're singing our praises before all those things. <laughs> you know, there's other things that can take a second place because I'm singing my praise to God. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. So notice there it says, and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Jesus says something about worship in the New Testament. He said, you must worship in spirit and in truth. Yeah? Similar kind of concept here. So living a holy life, and at the same time remaining humble before God is a direct indication of how much I love God. And I say that and remaining humble because it's possible to live a holy life outwardly but be prideful inwardly 
And that's a real temptation, is to start to look at our outward behavior and think, well, look at me, you know, I'm not like all those other people. Become like the Pharisee when he's praying to himself. Holiness and humility. That's what we're aiming for, yeah? Before God is a direct indication of how much I love God. Both holiness and love are attributes of God. We need to understand both. So I'm going to finish with some lyrics from a song. And whoever wrote these lyrics, I'm pretty sure they understand what it means to understand both God's holiness and his love. It says, In the quiet I lament every nail my sin did buy, and I wonder why you spent lavish blood on such as I. And so if he's realizing his own depravity, his own moral bankruptcy, and he's lamenting, Jesus died on the cross because of me. Now he's wondering, why? Why did you die for me? And it's because he loves me. And that results in praises on my tongue from my heart. Yeah, not just on my tongue, but from my heart. For our God, who became flesh for us all, unto you I will ever sing my praises. I will sing forever. So I'd invite you to come up and take your bread and wine, or the grape juice. And I just want to give you a couple of minutes just to meditate on what we've been talking about. Reflect on, you know what? God really is worth loving. He's done so much for me. I'm willing to give up the worldly things I'm holding on to. There's no way I can keep loving those things when God loves me so much. Lord, we do thank you for everything you've done for us. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, help us to remember that you love us, but also that you are holy. And the more we understand your holiness, the more we will understand how great your love was for us and is for us when you died on the cross. Not to save us what it took to do that. Help us, Lord, to respond in the right way, Lord, in thankfulness and praise and obedience and submission to you. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.